Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Andrew Stanton. I'm the director of films like Finding Nemo and Wally, and now John Carter, and you are listening to Film Spotting. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Explorers have searched for it. They looked for it in South America, but it was in Africa the whole time. I'm the only one who's seen it. Well, the kingdom of Wakanda is a secret no more as Black Panther opens on screens across the country this weekend. On this show, Josh and I review the highly anticipated new Marvel movie from Creed director Ryan Coogler. And this should be a fun top five. The directors we'd like to see handed the reins of a superhero franchise. So if listeners' suggestions on social media were any indication, the world really wants a Greta Gerwig comic book And I'm down with that. Lady Bird already sounds like its own superhero movie, doesn't it? All that and more ahead on Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. So enough with all the prestige Oscar stuff, Josh. We are back to superheroes. Yeah, it's only been, what, two weeks since a superhero movie came out. Exactly. Last week, we talked about Gary Oldman up for Best Actor for Darkest Hour, that film nominated for Best Picture. We had a little catching up to do with that movie. Gary Oldman, we touched on this during the episode when we did our top five Gary Oldman performances that he's played a lot of super villains, but we never did really get to see his Joker. He appears in those Nolan Batman films. He would have been so good at some point in his career playing that villain or really any other comic book villain. Later in the show, we're going to get to play studio heads. Finally, we're going to pick the directors. And I did go the extra mile, Josh. I've got stars, too. You did. What about so you? you matched them up. I cast them. Uh, it, it crossed my mind, so I could probably throw a few names out okay. there. Yeah, I like it. We're going to see which directors and actors we'd like to see paired with superheroes. So we're calling it our top five superhero director combos we'd like to see. Also later in the show, Massacre Theater and Film Spotting Madness gets real. But first, the decision to hand Marvel's Black Panther to director Ryan Coogler was pretty much met with universal approval. Has the director of Fruitvale Station in Creed stuck the landing? The world is changing. Soon there will only be the conquered and the conquerors. 
Step into the spot like you are a good man. Step into the spot like it's a good heart. And it's hard for a good man to be a king. Well, here we are, Adam, with one of our fresh-from-the-screening reviews, this time for Black Panther. Still processing. Those hot shots in New York and L.A., you know, I they know. saw it a week or two ago, but we just got our chance here during opening week. Lowly Chicago critic. Yes. Well, so bear with us, listeners, as we offer some still-forming thoughts on the latest Marvel film. Of course, this isn't the first time we've seen Black Panther, otherwise known as T'Challa, king of the fictional African country of Wakanda. Played by Chadwick Boseman, the character had a brief and exciting appearance in Captain America Civil War. But here he gets his own movie, where we learn more about the history and politics of Wakanda, a nation that poses to the outside world as a needy third-world country, but actually uses high-tech camouflage to disguise the fact that it's a prosperous, technologically advanced land, thanks to this rare mineral, vibranium. Did you catch that? Adam? Oh, I did. A lot of vibranium talk in this. Yeah, Cameron is suing them somewhere. <laughs> vibranium is hidden under the Wakandan soil. Now, in the wake of his father's death, T'Challa has taken his seat on the throne, but his reign is soon disrupted by a vibranium thief and arms dealer. This is Andy Circus Sands' motion capture and an American mercenary played by Michael B. Jordan with a particular interest in Wakanda. Black Panther arrives at an interesting moment for superhero films, Adam, even as it represents a significant advancement for the genre in that it features primarily people of color, both behind and in front of the camera. It also comes at a time when many people, not just stuffy film critics, are complaining of superhero exhaustion. If I'm not thoroughly exhausted, maybe I'm just tired, it's because some of the more recent comic book movies that I've enjoyed have worked because they've been put in the hands of interesting directors. Last year alone gave us Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman and Taika Waititi's Thor Ragnarok. Black Panther has been co-written and directed by Ryan Coogler, who is following up two extremely strong efforts. Fruitvale Station, a dramatization of the last day in the life of Oscar Grant, who was shot and killed by transit police in Oakland in 2009, and Creed, one of the Rocky movies I actually liked. All this is to justify my urge to look at Black Panther through an auteurist lens, Adam. Would you say Kugler botched this big assignment, merely shepherded it to a safe release, or did he manage to put a unique stamp on it in a way that will stave off superhero exhaustion a bit longer? Well, I'm definitely going with C of those options. And as we've noted, we're still processing it here. So giving it all of about 30 to 45 minutes of thought, here's about all I can do from an Otura standpoint. And I'm really curious to hear where you stand, Josh. But you mentioned Fruitvale Station. And this movie opens with a bit of a prologue that begins in Oakland where Fruitvale Station takes place, and the conversations that occur there, the concerns of the characters there, the way everything about that world feels grounded and real and gritty is of a piece with everything we see in Fruitvale Station. From an action standpoint, and we'll probably get into this because we have both long lamented the way action scenes are choreographed in these Marvel films and superhero films in general— I don't think it's a strength of this film, but there is one sequence in particular I like that is mostly constructed based on my recollection on a long take that made me think a lot of the 
great long take that happens during Adonis Creed's first fight in the movie Creed. It is one unbroken take and really puts us right there in the ring from his perspective. I think it was my favorite action scene of the year in 2015. And then there's the villain. And I bet we're going to spend a fair amount of time on the villain here and the performer. Not just that Michael B. Jordan is the common link here from an acting standpoint across all three films, but his villain, Killmonger, has more than a little Adonis Creed in him in terms of his charisma, his power, his pain, too, that we do see come through. And I'll go so far as to note as well, Josh, that his anger, the trait that really drives that character, is rooted in family, just like Adonis's was. And also, more specifically, even a choice made by that character's father that instigated a whole chain of events. I think I'll mention as well that I did enjoy about this movie, even though we will get maybe to some of that action, I think I really enjoyed the fact that there is a good balance, and it's tipped way more, the scale is tipped way in the favor of world-building and character in this film versus the smaller part of the scale, which is plot. And I think based on what we've seen in the character drama that Fruitvale Station is, and then a little bit more just taking it up a notch in terms of it being this bigger budget action movie with Creed, that is what I would expect from a Ryan Coogler movie. It's going to hit all the notes that it needs to hit from a storytelling standpoint, but in terms of character and in terms of really understanding who these people are, where they come from, what's motivating them, that's what's going to be the priority in a Ryan Coogler film, and it is here. Yeah, I love good world building, and I think Black Panther does a fantastic job of doing that, so that's one of the things I did appreciate about it. And you hit all the same points I probably would have brought up in terms of what marks this a Coogler movie. He was born in Oakland, so... Very cool to see that he's setting that. It, it's really bookended by two mm-hmm. scenes in Oakland, right? Yeah. And, and so you've got that there. The long takes. I think there is some CGI trickery here. Of some course. more cheating than some there cuts. is in Creed. Yeah, some cuts to being get hidden. those. But um, and, and some of them, as we'll get to, are more effective than others. But uh, I like that use of the camera and Michael B. Jordan as you know the, this partner, this in front of the camera partner that he's established. He's easily a highlight of this film. Mm-hmm. Another question I could have asked and maybe we'll get to is, does he upstage the hero too yeah, much? Yeah, I think we'll get there. And is, is that a bad thing if he does? Uh, we'll, I think he does. Okay, yeah. we'll, we'll revisit that because there's one more thing I do want to mention that I think Kugler brings to this film and it's an ease with the cultural identity mm-hmm. that it wants to wear, it deserves to wear, and it should wear. And this goes back to all of the participants being mostly people of color. There's just a sense that this isn't necessarily a demographic that it wants to cater to or, you know, easily picked stereotypical elements that it wants to pop mm-hmm. into the movie to get that touch or that vibe or whatever. It's fully incorporated into the identity of the film in things like the costuming, yes. how it's drawn from traditional African clothing, the music. The music's mm-hmm. a, it, it's a little bit – I wish they'd committed more in the music because the best moments of Black Panther are when it grabs this identity wholly, not mm-hmm. only in costuming or in character but in music. And it yeah, all comes the drumming. together. The, that's what I was going to mm-hmm. say. I'm thinking of one moment where there's a fight scene in this underground casino And this is one of T'Challa's – it's the general of the Wakandan army played by Denai Guerrero, General Okoye. And she gets – the camera swings over and focuses on her 
maybe 30, 45 seconds of this fight scene, and we get this chanting on the soundtrack in place of the traditional Marvel music. Mm-hmm. And in those seconds, this movie fully becomes its own. It's it's like it. the movie itself puts on that Black Panther costume, you know? Mm-hmm. Even though he's not the focus of that, that sequence, um, it really owns this identity. And I think that's something that Kugler, you know, did particularly in Creed, where which I just watched for the first time a few weeks ago, somehow yeah. missed it, and struck me how much it was this really admirable act of reverse cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. So Kugler and his collaborators are coming in on this what has been historically a white working class story and turning it into something that's really rooted in the African American experience. Mm-hmm. Very different things going on here, but this sense of a unique identity and the way Black Panther owns it, I think is is refreshing and exciting and does set it apart in a lot of ways as a Marvel movie. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think we get that right from the very beginning of the movie, even before the sequence that we touched on. I believe I've got the order right. We hear a character, a young son, asking a father to tell him a story. And we get, through this elaborate CGI sequence, we get the origin of Wakanda. And that really stayed with me because I wondered, it seemed obvious maybe, that Cooler was right off the bat trying to tell us that this is going to be a movie about narratives. It's going to be a movie about the need for stories and how they function in our lives. And there are so many examples of this I could point to in the script. I'll just give you a few. There's a moment early on where a character says, speak nothing about this. This idea, they, they've been involved in this really traumatic situation. It's the first action scene in the film. And of course, they're, they're going to they're gonna remember everything that transpired their whole lives, and they are probably going to tell everyone about it for the rest of their lives. And yet they were told to keep this secret. Maintaining a lie is a phrase that comes up in this film at a really key moment. Wakanda's entire existence is predicated on the rest of the world. We we find this out. The rest of the world thinks that they're just a bunch of savages, and they play into that because they don't want their truth to be discovered. And there are multiple main characters whose actions are determined by a narrative that they've set for themselves. Michael B. Jordan's character is one of them. I think even T'Challa's character is one as well, where he's just trying to follow in his father's footsteps as opposed to actually understanding what his own path could possibly be, trying to write his own story. And a major part of this movie is those narratives then having to be confronted and having to be deconstructed. So for me, fitting in with everything you just described, it seems so appropriate that this would be a crucial aspect of Cooler's story because it's his way of saying, I think now we're going to tell our story. We're going to tell this decidedly from an African-American point of view. And that has, of course, been a through line through all three of the films that we've touched on so far, Fruitvale Station, Creed, and now this. And that idea of appropriating some of these narratives, these larger cultural narratives, not just these Marvel movies, but I wonder if you recognized the odd well, odd in that it surprised me, James Bond aspect oh, of this. absolutely. And, and literally while you were talking, I did quickly Google this. I just Googled James Bond, Black Panther, Coogler. And here's an article, one of the first links that comes up that says, when I first started talking to Marvel, one thing they were interested in was for Panther to be their version of James Bond, which I thought was incredibly interesting and exciting. It was a really outside-of-the-box way to look at T'Challa. So there are so many examples of this in the way, for example, his sister is Q, basically, right? I mean, it's definitely there, giving him all the technology, all the gadgets. We get that Bond scene that we always get where she lays out for him all the new toys. I think there's even a reference to that character. The sister says, 
something about all the movies that father used to watch on TV. And I wonder if that's a reference to Bond as well. The casino, that whole sequence, which I really enjoyed, seems straight out of Skyfall, yes. right? There's a sequence exactly like that. I think it's the same casino. It might be. And then how about the fact that we get Martin Freeman's CIA agent involved, which is straight out of Live and Let Die and other Bond movies, and everything about buying stolen weapons and technology and people talking into their sleeves. It's just like a Bond film. Now, the movie does abandon that to a point. Once it gets to Wakanda, it's not really interested in those elements. And along those lines, it follows the Bond narrative, that structure in that there is a villain who, bigger picture, has a goal of a sort of world domination, I suppose we could argue. But this is mostly a domestic affair. The stakes of this movie are not save the world. They're more save our country, discover your identity, your true identity. What do you and your country stand for? And I think that all goes back to this storytelling notion, this idea of establishing a new truth, a new way of living versus maintaining the lie. Yeah, it's it's really palace intrigue. And that that's refreshing too. We've talked before about these, how these Marvel movies and other comic book movies as well, the bigger they get, the more grandiose in the stakes, the, the mm-hmm. less we're interested in them, the less feels is at stake. And here things are kept relatively small. If there's a comparable among the Marvel universe, it might be the first Thor movie, which was all about palace intrigue as well. Mm-hmm. There's some more fish out of water stuff there <laughs> that this doesn't really have, thankfully. I think right. that would have been the wrong direction. But I did like how it really roots us in the backroom struggles going on in Wakanda. Now, you know, the cue here, Shuri is the sister's name played by Leticia Wright. Her lab is that in Wakanda, though? It's like underneath, right. you know? So I did pick up on all that James Bond stuff. As a matter of fact, the, the first thing I tweeted coming out was that this this was the Lion King-James Bond mashup. We didn't know we needed because <laughs> yeah. I think Lion King is also – and you've touched on it with him – trying to weigh how to rule mm-hmm. this kingdom is really one of the driving storylines here. And I thought that was – rich as well. This maybe is where we can shift to the Jordan versus yes, Bozeman performance. Exactly where because I wanted to go. I think Michael B. Jordan does steal the movie. Yes. I think it's not because Bozeman is giving a bad performance, nor do I think it's to the detriment of the movie. Mm-hmm. I think the way this all works is perfect. Those scenes with T'Challa and his sister, especially in the lab, are really one of the rare moments of lightness. Mm-hmm. He has some light scenes also with Lupita Nyong'o, who plays Nakia, who is another Wakandan, who is also a spy. And I think we see another side of him there. But mostly this character is very serious, almost to the point of being morose. And I kind of found that interesting rather than he doing— He carries the weight He does, and you feel that. And, yeah. and that's how Bozeman carries himself. Yeah. So I think it's a good performance because it, you don't want another jokey Marvel superhero. No. Okay? I, I'm glad we have something different here, and I, I think it fits the character, and I find this to be an interesting character because of that. But then, if that's all you had, you know, the movie would feel lacking. So to have Michael B. Jordan come in and not chew scenery— As you said, his character's motivations are rooted in some very real things. Yes. And there's real anger there. But to have him be this live wire and particularly an African-American live wire in Mm -hmm. a way that stands against the more regal African presence of the other Wakandan characters. Yeah, that's a good point. And and that gets thrown into some of the throne room scenes. They're more stoic. Yeah. yeah. And, And it's just a really interesting dynamic at play. I think it all works just fine. Yeah, I do too. I will admit that I would like to 
think a little bit more about that discrepancy, for lack of a better word, between Michael B. Jordan and Bozeman when they're on screen. How much of it is Jordan's pure wattage? How much of it is the fact that he's the villain and the villains are always more exciting mm-hmm. or almost always more exciting, not only in films, but in literature? How much of it is maybe Kugler's camera actually favoring Jordan, mm-hmm. his collaborator, a little bit more than Bozeman? I don't know. I'd like to examine it a little further. Or maybe it's just because Jordan is, quote unquote, a better actor than Bozeman. But I think Bozeman's really good here. And I like that we get two very different performances. I'll throw this out. And I'm not going to take the time. I didn't have the time, nor am I going to take the time to research the answer to this question. But just gut feeling and looking at a quick list of some of the prominent MCU villains, who is a better Marvel villain than Michael B. Jordan's Killmonger? Yeah, so I'm always a big defender of Loki. I, I right. think which most you know, people put at number one, and and maybe that's why I don't like those movies much. Loki oh, does nothing for me. Really? No. Oh, the I whole jokester, the prankster thing. I think he's no. fantastic in in Thor, and also even in Avengers. So I would put Michael B. Jordan up there with him. But yeah, I, I you know. No one else really comes immediately no. to mind. Well, we talk about this all the time. Michael Keaton in Spider-Man Homecoming, maybe. Very good. Okay. You know, that's Very good. a more recent example. But this is a real villain and all that entails. He's not a CGI construct. He is flesh and blood. He is motivated, as I said, by pain, by a recognition of injustice. His methods and his ultimate goal might be, well, they are questionable, but we at least understand and empathize with what's driving him. And I think that's really important. In some ways, I think it makes him not only more interesting as a villain, but also more dangerous. It it imbues him with more power because he isn't just this kind of programmed evil force, this evil entity, kind of generic evil entity that is hell-bent on domination and destruction. This is a character who almost feels more dangerous, I think, because he's driven by conviction. He's driven by principle. And and that, that gives this movie another layer. On top of it all, as a villain, he does have to be a badass. And he is a badass. He is someone that we feel intimidated by. We feel the the chaos and the notion that he can really kind of do whatever he wants when he's on screen that I think is so important to a good villain. And as we've said, he dominates a little bit Bozeman in some of those scenes who is more stoic, who is more reserved. And I think there is a point in the movie, all the world building is so successful that there is a moment in the movie where these two characters finally confront each other, where the movie's maybe at its best. And then I'll just say it kind of goes away from both of them for a bit. And I think the movie dips with them. And then of course it does no spoiler here end with, as all these movies do a spectacle of a battle. And I didn't find it, once again, I hate to be a broken record, I didn't find it all that compelling. What about you? I don't think it's a highlight of the film, but I would not put it in the category of these other finales we've been lamenting where an army of space creatures driven by one of these boring villains you're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, the purple-headed, red-headed guys who float in from space holding a glowing orb or something. Sure. There are a lot it, of it anonymous bodies well, fighting each other. Actually, you know, not to give too much away, but it mm-hmm. involves various tribal factions. Yes. And so that was an interesting wrinkle in just – basically, we had an emotional attachment to someone in each of those factions that the movie had carefully established. Mm-hmm. So, I, yes, I'll again, give you that. I don't think it's I don't think it's you know a highlight of the film. I think there are other action sequences though that are less effective. Where 
And this goes back to what we admired about some of Kugler's other work where we don't see those long takes. We get a lot of edits. Yes. Fast edits, quick edits of close-ups and it's more chaotic than yeah. anything. And not only that, it takes on a synthetic feel yes. that the movie up to that point had never – had never given us. So the good confrontation you're talking about between Michael B. Jordan and Bozeman, that's the one that takes place on the waterfalls, mm-hmm. right? Okay. And I would say the and best before action it, scene. Before it, where they're just talking to each other. Right. Is, yes. is lightning charge. But an actual fight scene. Yes. And, and I would say the previous sequence in that location mm-hmm. is also a highlight of the film. Yeah. That reminded me of a better. Creed. I think it is better. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of a Creed boxing match. And then the one in the casino, you know, is good too. But those two by the waterfall, you have a sense, obviously it's a CGI background, but you have two actors sharing the same space. There are less frequent edits. Mm-hmm. And I wish more of the film had been like that. I think a final confrontation we get between Jordan and Bozeman is, you know, on a completely faux set yeah. where you're you're not even quite sure what the logistics mm-hmm. are in terms of how high up they are or what the dangers are in this situation. So, so I don't think that one worked quite as well. So the action overall, I would say, is uneven with, mm-hmm. with some really strong points. Yes. I think this thing is also – as much as I appreciated the world building, it goes off in way too many – plot lines outside of that. I don't think I enjoyed Circus. He is chewing scenery. He amused me. But I don't think this movie needed him in terms of plot at all, really. I think there is, as we've spent a lot of time on, enough richness in the Michael B. Jordan character to root everything there. I like Circus here overall. And I'll give you one counter to that. For me, the circus character, and I don't want to get into spoilers too heavy here, but I think that it works within the larger narrative because it fits in with this idea of deconstructing narratives and our expectations. There's a point where he even says to another character, I assumed you were a certain type of character and you surprised me. Similarly, we as audience members who have watched not only so many of these films but James Bond films – immediately we're given both villains on screen and yet which one do we assume is the one who is in charge of everything who's the real scary figure we buy into it immediately because of certain conventions and i think that's kugler playing with us in an interesting way yes i i guess i wish if i had been surprised by that as i was with spider-man homecoming which completely took me by surprise that that villain reveal uh, i might have appreciated more but i kind of had a sense what was going to happen here. okay i'm gonna throw out just one little easter egg because i don't want to get into the details of it but if you've seen the movie or obviously you're listening to this and you see it there's a last jedi connection too there's one moment that happens in the film that of course completely unintentionally i'm sure connects to something that happens in the last jedi that also ties back to this larger narrative theme that I've been describing. So I'm just going to throw that out there. For fans of Black Panther and The Last Jedi, you can write in if you caught it. Okay, let me give you, I don't know if this qualifies as an Easter egg, but you're going to love this. I mentioned her already, Denai Guerrera playing the Mm -hmm. General Okoye. I think like she's up there with Michael B. Jordan in terms of holding the screen. No doubt about it. And she has this... uh, this costume she wears during that casino sequence, which is like this red dress mm-hmm. that's flowing. I mean, when she's later in a car chase on top of a car and her weapon is a spear, mm-hmm. she is just badass in her attitude, yes. too. I, I could 
see a movie just with her. There you go. I know she's a secondary character. Add it to your top five. But okay, I know she's, it's a little she's late. She's maybe not really a superhero, but we can go with it. Wait wait for this, Adam. I just found, looking okay. up more about her, I, the biggest credit I think she has before is she's been on Walking Dead. She's new to me, so I'm just finding this out. Born in Grinnell, Iowa. What? Father. What? Taught chemistry at Grinnell College. What? Did you take chemistry with Danai Gurira's dad? <laughs> Josh. I was this, is Eng- all, this is all via IMDb. So. I was an English major who didn't take a single science class in four years. So, no, you I missed did not. Out. Take you missed out. Chemistry. Wow. Yeah. She was born in Grinnell? Born. The, How IMDb old is she? Says How old that, is she, according to IMDb? I, what year was she this born? This is where my research stopped. Well, come know. on. Give me a birth date here. You can find it. I'll vamp for a second okay. while you find the birth date. Denai Guerrera, according to IMDb, was born in 1978. So, not. Not too far after me at all. Yeah. We we overlapped in our time at Grinnell. You didn't run into her, huh? Absolutely. I spent the first 14 years of my life there. Yeah. She's fantastic. By far She's really good. a highlight I'm in stunned. this film. I am, I am truly stunned. If you see Black Panther and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Massacre Theater is next, where, like last time, we'll perform a scene from a 1980s movie, this one quite a bit more popular than the other film we massacred. Then it's green lights all around. To the director's superhero pairings we'd like to see. Stay with us. King of my city, king of my country, king of my homeland. King of the filthy, king of the fallen, we living again. King of the shooters, looters, boosters, and ghettos popping. King of the past, present, future, my ancestors watching. King of the culture, king of the soldiers, king of the bloodshed. King of the wisdom, king of the ocean, king of the respect. King of the optimistic and dreamers, they go and get it. King of the winners, district, and geniuses with conviction. King of the fighters, king of the fathers, king of the belated. King of the answer, king of the problem, king of the forsaken. King of the empathy and resentment, king of remorse. King of my enemies, may they fall to feet, I rejoice King of the skyscrapers, dodging haters, pro-religion Nine faces, go against the mind, race them with precision I embrace them with collision, kings did it, king's vision Black Panther, King Kendrick, all hell the king I dropped a million tears, I know several responsibilities put me here I don't pedal backwards, but I live old-fashioned The lens that I'm looking through won't prescribe you the right glasses Masses are now free, ashes I'm dumping now about to spread up And where exactly do you live, Mr. Dawson? Well, right now, my address is the RMS Titanic. After that, I'm on God's good humor. And how is it you have means to travel? I work my way from place to place. You know, tramp steamers and such. But I won my ticket on Titanic here at a lucky hand at poker. A very lucky hand. So, Josh, what kind of a hand have we dealt ourselves for next week's show? A long one. <laughs> a long a one. Very You're going to love this. Josh comes to the Black Panther screening, sits down next to me and says... Did you know how long Titanic no, is? That's not well, it's, that's how I remember it. <laughs> I said, did you know it's three? What is it? Three and three hours and 20 minutes? I don't know. I thought this was like a but two hour, 40 minute movie. You don't remember movie. it being over three hours I, long? I don't. I remember it being Joshua very, shocked. very long. <laughs> not this long. Okay. Well, Leonardo DiCaprio there, of course, in James Cameron's Titanic, the number one box office earner of the 90s. And as we approach... This year's edition of Film Spotting Madness, best of the 1990s. A lot more on that coming up here in a moment. We thought it might make sense to revisit James Cameron's film for whatever reason some other critics have recently undertaken to reconsider the movie. And it seems like most folks, from Alyssa Wilkinson to David Ehrlich, are proclaiming their adoration 
it's for Titanic. Cool, it's cool to like Titanic. It's cool now. to like Titanic. All right, that's fine. I, so I we'll might be able to get on board with that. I was mildly favorable when it came out mm-hmm. originally. Have not seen it since. So yeah, I'm, I'm despite my hesitation over the running time, <laughs> I am intrigued to see what I'll make of Titanic now. I hope it's cool again because I'm going to admit to something. I have long been ashamed, even though only maybe seven people read it, who I will never see again in my life. I wrote my essay to get into film school about a week after I saw Titanic, and I definitely mentioned Titanic in the essay. Okay. How powerful Titanic was. (laughs) I was hoping you didn't base your whole essay around Titanic. No. Hey, I did not, but it got a mention. You're talking to the guy who leads off his book with an appreciation of Avatar, so... (laughs) We all, that's, we all have skeletons in our closets. Which, which is why I still haven't read it. <laughs> you lost me at page one, Josh. A Sacred Cow review of Titanic is what's, wait for it, on deck this week. And then I don't know we, if I approve of that. <laughs> we think we may get to the top five 90s movies. Basically, we're calling it underrated 90s movies, but we could only pick 64 or <clears throat> 73 movies from the 90s to fit into our bracket. So there were a lot of good ones left out. We thought it might make sense to do our five individual favorites that did not make the cut. So these are underrated movies by by you and Sam, pretty much. Yeah, maybe. After putting, well, <laughs> after putting, as you but will it hear when like we get there to the are criteria. Some big titles yeah, there's some big titles, and, and we did consider more objective means. It's way more objective in terms of looking at other established critics and lists who have evaluated the 90s and then putting a little bit of our own okay. flavor onto it. So we will see how we each individually deal with some of our favorite 90s movies being left off the bracket. I did want to take a quick moment, Josh, to acknowledge the passing of the great Chicago actor John Mahoney. died last week at 77. People remember him from Frasier. I remember him as the manager. He's Kid Gleason in John Sayles' Eight Men Out, where he plays the the manager of the Chicago White Sox. But of course, I also think of him fondly from Ed Burns and his debut movie, The Brothers McMullen. He is the father in that film. Just a great actor who was a member of the Steppenwolf Ensemble. And I feel really grateful that I got to see him on stage at Steppenwolf just a few months ago. I think it was back in October. I talked about this play on the show a little bit. I think maybe it was just in the Hot Mike's bonus stuff at the end, but the Rembrandt. And he plays actually Homer in it. And then he comes back at the end and plays another character, a modern day character who coincidentally is dying of cancer during the sequence. And we see him being taken care of by his partner, who is a art museum security guard who we meet in the first segment of the play, but a great play and a great performance where he gets to play Homer and just comes out on stage for that act. And it's a one man show. As I recall it, it's just him on the stage talking directly to the audience. And it was a great experience. I'm glad I got to have it. And I'm glad that we all got to experience John Mahoney's talents. Now, this is the best transition I can do. We go from the Rembrandt, a play about art and death and looking for meaning in both of those things to another mention, Josh, of the Seattle event that you are going to be part of here coming up Saturday, February 24th. It's at Seattle University. That's what it's called. Not the University of Seattle. Seattle University. Seattle University. Okay. You got that right. The Search for Meaning Festival, bringing in 50 authors and artists, and you're going to be talking about Movies Are Prayers. Yeah, I could, you know, send you maybe the synopsis of my speech, and then you really mm. won't have to read the book. Yeah, just, you could just, just give me the bullet points. The clips notes. Go. 
If anyone's interested in joining me there, you are welcome to on Saturday, February 24. We'll link to the Fest page where you can get the full schedule. But you could also join us the night before where I'm going to be doing a film spotting meetup. We've found a place, the Elysian Brewing Company. It's the Capitol Hill location. If you're familiar with Seattle, Mm -hmm. they have a few locations. We'll be at Capitol Hill around 7.30 p.m. on Friday, February 23. I think we've got about 12, 13 people have already RSVP'd. You can do that, which would be helpful because then I'll have an idea of whether I need to try to set aside a room Mm -hmm. or how much space to get. But it looks like we'll have a good group there. So you can find on the events page at filmspotting.net a place to go ahead and RSVP. I hope to see some of you there. Yeah, should be fun. Speaking of fun, we are going to embark on another Film Spotting Marathon, and we think this is going to be a blast. We know many of you are excited about it as well. We spend so much time, rightfully so, the marathons are all about cinematic blind spots, filling in holes in our education, so we often talk about some pretty weighty material, and oftentimes we're looking at the work of foreign cinema or foreign language directors, and we wanted to just have some classical Hollywood fun this time. So starting March 2nd, it's our Vincente Minnelli Marathon, six movies covering musicals, of course, some comedy, some drama. First up is Cabin in the Sky. The lineup, if you want to participate in this marathon, along with the venues where you can see these films, those are all on our marathons page, filmspotting.net slash marathons. The corrections department. Well, we've got two of them here. One's definitely a correction. One, maybe more of a clarification that's worth mentioning. Goes back to The Right Stuff, our top five films of 1983 a few weeks back, and The Right Stuff was my number one. Edward Dixon writes in, Josh, to point out that Chuck Yeager didn't choose to bow out. Those were my words of the astronaut program. He was ineligible because he wasn't a college graduate. Both the film and the book are clear about that and in fact present Jaeger as somewhat forlorn about his exclusion. Definitely agree that he was also framed as the prototype of the right stuff and a heroic figure to the Mercury 7. One thing the book mentions that the movie doesn't is that Jaeger's vocal twang was adopted by commercial pilots for generations thereafter and no matter their region of origin, the voice from the cockpit of airliners was likely to sound somewhat like that of the legendary <laughs> Jaeger. I don't remember that. I haven't seen the right stuff for a long time. And I was just sort of speaking extemporaneously there and thought, because my memory of that film, Josh, is that that was part of the Jaeger character, is that he saw himself as a truer pilot than these pilots who had given themselves over to this this space program that didn't really allow them to be the pilots that they were. So that was always my my sense of it was maybe there was a little bit of of a sense of him being forlorn, but more a sense of almost he was above that. And so that's what I express. But it's there. I went to the Wikipedia page for the movie. And Edward is absolutely right that that is part of the film. And I'm sure it's part of the Tom Wolfe book, as Edward says it is. This other one is related to something I said when we were doing our show on Darkest Hour and Top 5 Gary Oldman performances. I wondered, you know, why not just cast an actor Churchill's age at the time. Well, uh-huh. it turns out Oldman is 59 now. This comes to us from Jason Carey in New York, though I had some people mention it to me on Twitter as well. Jason said, Oldman is 59 years old. That is six years younger than Churchill was. It's not a significant age difference. It's that people seem younger now than they did then. Hmm. Okay. May, maybe that's it. Maybe Oldman is, I'm just complimenting Oldman. He's a spry <laughs> 59. Right, right. And man, the way they characterize Churchill 
in Darkest Hour looks like a guy older than 66 to me. But um, yeah, obviously there wasn't that big of a gap between them. Well, speaking of Gary Oldman and wonderful acting, we're going to do some terrible acting in Massacre Theater. This is the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a prize. A couple weeks back, we massacred, I suppose, this scene. Now we have no way to find the Black Fortress. There is one who might help. Who? The widow of the web. <laughs> that creature helps no one. And none who go there return. She has great power. <laughs> to kill. She may not kill me. For I know her name. Her name is Death. Are you suggesting this scene arrived pre-massacred? <laughs> I am indeed. <laughs> well, that was Ken Marshall as, this will be good here, Colwyn. Alun Armstrong as Torquil. I think I took some of that last night to help me sleep. And Freddie Jones as... Can I buy a vowel? You should know. You love this movie. I don't remember how to say your name. Y-N-Y-R. Yeah. Oh, I think I got it right. Of course, what else could we be speaking of but 1983's Crawl? It was written by Stanford Sherman. I guess you can credit him for those names. And directed by Peter Yates. That massacre was part of a show that included our top five films of 83, along with a blind spotting review of David Cronenberg's Videodrome. For the connections between those films and that massacre, we turn to, among other listeners, Eric Lowe in Baltimore. Tie in with Videodrome, the year of release is the same, 1983. And that's really all we were going off of here. What do you I mean, need? come on. But it was directed by Eric points out the great Peter Yates, who also directed Videodrome's James Woods in Eyewitness. There you go. So another one we certainly weren't aware of. The responses to this massacre theater were relatively few. Which we expected. But they were impassioned. Adam and Josh, Larry Carino, Pembroke Pines, Florida. The one and only Crawl, gentlemen. Crawl. A classic. I am with you, Josh Larson. I loved this movie. And I... If it means turning in my film spotting membership card, so be it. I own the damn thing on DVD, and I cannot wait till the day when my five-year-old is old enough to share Crawl with him. It is a classic, not for a lot of good reasons, but still a classic. Keep up the good work. So how did your children do with Crawl? I know you rushed to indoctrinate them. I chose to spare them from Crawl. Uh, man, Larry is all in. I think we do have to take his card. Uh, I tried to give him an out you by did. saying last show, if you appreciated Crawl then, but not necessarily now, you don't have to turn in your card. Oh. L- Larry's, the DVD, I mean, <laughs> there you go. The fine print. He's all in, though. Leo Fong in Redding, California, he wrote in and said he thanked us for uncovering a repressed memory. I was a college freshman in 1983 and remember the experience of seeing Crawl with a group of new friends who were science fiction and fantasy enthusiasts. As an English major and an insufferable Anglophile at the time, I was eager to show them what a team of British artists could do with this genre. With a veteran director like Peter Yates, whose other 1983 film The Dresser lovingly depicted a Shakespearean theater company during World War II and a cast made up of actors from the Royal Shakespeare Company and London's National Theater, I was certain that the film would blend the familiar tropes of fantasy with some impressive dramatic gravitas and British wit. 
Instead, I ended up being embarrassed by the cheesy special effects and overall campy tone. Looking back, I don't see how I could have been so surprised by this. British filmmakers were truly embracing the camp during this period. Witness 1980s Flash Gordon or Roger Moore Bond films like Moonraker and A View to a Kill. It's been nearly 35 years later, and your Massacre Theater episode made me cringe over what a pretentious ass I was at 18. (laughs) I only hope none of those friends who saw the movie with me listened to it. Jesse Van Hoy in Seattle writes in, Kroll, it could only be Kroll. I defend this movie to this day. Consider, yeah, A, a murderer's row of character actors, especially among the band of thieves, Alan Armstrong, Robbie Coltrane, who apparently has his voice dubbed for some reason, and a young Liam Neeson, plus Freddie Jones as the old one and David Batley as the bumbling would-be wizard. It's fun to watch these people work and play off each other. B, really interesting production design of the beast lair. The whole structure is like a biomorphic extension of his body that expands and contracts according to his whim. Well, now we're talking Videodrome territory. Neat blending of two great prongs of fantasy, sword and sorcery in space opera. I wish more movies acknowledged that these are two sides of the same genre coin. Much of what we call science fiction is not that at all. I could see Kroll existing alongside Pern or Arrakis. Josh, do you want to expound on that? I'm lost. I'm sorry. Okay. Perhaps the Beast Lair has set down on those far-flung worlds as well. Nerd note, Sam is here for us since you couldn't do it. Arrakis is the fictional planet in Frank Herbert's Dune series. I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation. Pern is the setting for a series of science fiction books by Anne McCaffrey. Okay. Mm. Well, now Jesse, you know. I'm afraid we will be taking your film spotting card. <laughs> Indeed. There's there's more. And oh, he's not I, I done. Think, no, he's not done. But, oh. but he mentioned the Widow of the Web as a tragic character. The Fire Mares, those things were just cool. Do you remember them? Uh, no, but they sound cool. Okay. There's, there's a lot here. Jesse is very passionate about Kroll, which I think means we do, in fact, have to revoke his card. Zach in Chicago said, Adam, I am not even eligible to win a T-shirt. I'm a prior winner, but I want to join Josh's Band of Eleven. Oh, oh, we're way beyond that, Zach. If you grew up in the early 80s, as you noted, chances are good there were a couple of films on all the time. I can personally recite most of Clash of the Titans by heart. I'm there with you. I can fake the rabbit's British accents from Watership Down. I will always have a soft spot for Flash Gordon. And in a lesser but supporting role like Josh, I have a soft spot for Krull. Another episode tie-in is that the not-bad cinematography for Kroll was managed by Peter Sashitsky, who went on to collaborate extensively with David Cronenberg in films like Dead Ringers, Naked Lunch, and Eastern Promises. And many more. Yet another connection that, of course, we were not aware of. Finally, Justin in L.A. writes in, This is the rare case where I win no matter what. If I'm correct and I win Massacre Theater, then I can finally add that to my resume under my achievement section. <laughs> if I'm wrong, then I can play it off like this was just a wild guess, and I get to keep my my film spotting card. Aha, uh-huh, yes. Well done. So yes, how big is the Josh Larson Kroll Appreciation Society? We've gone from the band of 11 to then last week it was a band of 29. Mm-hmm. We finished Josh as a band of. Do you have a guess? We are at a strong 73. 73 indeed. We lost 73 listeners just by doing that Massacre Theater. We, we've also voted to rename ourselves the Kroll Recognition Society. Oh. Appreciation is a little too strong. So, yeah, if you want to retain your film spotting card, you can still join the Curl Recognition. That's society. appropriately pretentious. Well done. <laughs> it existed. Reach into the film spotting hat, brimming with 73 names. You're going to have to root around in there a long time to pick out this week's winner. The proud winner is Matt Zander from Big Lake, Minnesota. Congratulations, Matt. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting T-shirt. How did I come to this? 
I played Richard III. Five curtain calls. Five curtain calls. I was an actor once. Damn it, now look at me. Look at me! I can't go out there and I won't say that stupid line one more time. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, a movie maybe only slightly less campy than Crawl. <laughs> Our last performance, Josh. This is definitely going to be a little shorter, though. Yeah. We're going to change one word to make it a little less obvious, even though it really doesn't change it all that much. Right? Yeah. I okay. think that, that's a fair way to describe it. We're going to be in and out quickly here, so pay attention. Yep. And um, as I already mentioned, those of you who are familiar with 80s films, this should be an easy one. It should be. Okay. Okay. You started off. Are you ready? Um, <laughs> let me think about this. Okay. I'm ready. I mean, Gary Oldman... He would have really sink his teeth into oh, this part. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. I could see him so, doing so this. So channel him Got a little it. bit. And action. Excuse, please. You are not very realistic, are you? Where'd you come from? What are you talking about? You can fight, yes. But you are far too old to think that you can win. Is that a fact? Yes. And it could be a painful one. Ha. And <laughs> scene. scene. But why did I go Count Dracula? You went Count Dracula because you were thinking of Gary Oldman. You messed me up. You were thinking get Gary out, Oldman. Get out of my head. And you turned him into Dracula. Oh. It's not a Dracula movie. If no. you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is... Well, it's going to be at least a couple of weeks. We will probably put off Massacre Theater for a few weeks until after Film Spotting Madness concludes. But I have to mention this. You want to enter... Because not only are we giving away that very special, very coveted Film Spotting t-shirt, but we have three other prizes to give away. So one grand prize winner is going to get the t-shirt and this other prize, and then we will give away two more as well. We have $25 Black Panther-themed special edition Fandango gift cards. So these are good for any movie through Fandango, and we will link to more information about those special edition cards in our show notes at filmspotting.net. But giving away three of those, so three winners, not just the usual one Massacre Theater winner, Josh. Not bad. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. This is for you new people. I only have one rule. Everyone fights, no one quits. If you don't do your job, I'll shoot you. You get me. We get you, sir! You think of 80s actors. You think of Michael Ironside there from Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers, a 1990s movie, giving us as good a summation of film spotting madness maybe as any. Fight or die. It's going to get vicious. And Film Spotting Madness is officially not starting for, I think, at least a couple of weeks. This is our March Madness-style bracket where we pit 64 in this case movies against each other and see what movie emerges on top we have done actors we have done directors last year we did the pantheon some of our favorite films the most beloved film spotting films and other movies that were sacred cow reviews here on the show and now we are doing the best of the 1990s i am going to throw out that you can see the full list of movies that are going to be part of this tournament at filmspotting.net filmspotting.net slash madness, or just click on lists at the top of the page. But Sam and I have made some tweaks since the last time we posted it. Of course you have. We, we still might not be done. <laughs> I'm hoping that these play-in matches will stick, but we've been making some adjustments, Josh. So the list you saw, yes. it's changed. It's changed. The list some listeners saw, it's changed. See, this, we think for the better. This is why I haven't looked at it you yet. Don't know, you don't know how many conversations we've had about this. <laughs> 
I do know. You wouldn't know how many <laughs> Slack know. chats I, I think listeners are now had. getting a sense of why I, I hold off. I appreciate all that hard work. Yeah. Because the tournament is a blast. But I hold off on the participation uh-huh. until the last minute. Well, this time, we needed a third voice. And he's going to be so mad at me. I almost called you Mike Merrigan. Yeah, that, that's I who, mean, he's the grandfather of Film Spotting Madness. And yes. he is going to see the full bracket before anybody else does. I hope so. But I called in my old friend, Brett Merriman. Okay. Long-time listener of the show, lives out in L.A., and has a great sense of movies, is a screenwriter, and he, he just helped us consider a few things. And we did make one change. We added a comedy that I know you will be on board with because of Brett's urging. So I fully trust Brett's instincts. All right. That was a good decision, and it left me out of the loop, so an even better <laughs> it one. It did. He took your spot. <laughs> so what we're going to do this time, as we are holding off on the actual start of Film Spotting Madness, we are giving you nine poll questions that you can answer right now if you go to filmspotting.net slash madness you are picking the winners of these play-in matches and just because they're play-ins meaning we haven't decided which one of these two films is going to face another higher seated movie in the tournament that doesn't mean they're really low seated some of these actually whichever one wins it has a pretty decent spot in the hierarchy i got these aren't all down at the bottom but Sam and I felt like we found some nice pairings, and we had to weed out a couple of options, but still give love to some of these movies. So I think the the method to our madness will come through a little bit here as we get into them. And what I love is not only were you not part of any of this, Josh, but you haven't even looked at these matchups yet. So we're getting your unvarnished, yes. immediate reaction. Gut reaction, instinctual picks. That's how I play madness. Okay. And as we all know, it works out so well for me. Yeah. Because I've lost, lost the prediction bracket. Do you want to mention? I know you tweeted about it, but you did finally serve your penance. You watched Sandy Wexler. Speaking your punishment. Of, speaking of long movies, that thing's over two hours. I'll keep it brief. <laughs> it was punishment. The Sandler movie. Kevin James made me laugh. Really? As, as a ventriloquist comedian. He was good. Um the rest wasn't. Okay. We can move on. <laughs> Let's go ahead and move on to these play-in matchups. Again, you can vote now at filmspotting.net slash madness. You will determine which one of these two films will go on and compete in the big dance. We start with, Josh, our war satire matchup, Three Kings versus Starship Troopers. Mm, so the David O. Russell Iraq war comedy that had George Clooney, Mark Wahlberg, and Ice Cube. Well, comedy, probably not the best word. I think of that much more as a drama. It has really? a few laughs. Oh, sure. no, I remember it as like a mm. MASH style. See, this right here, right off yes. the bat, this is tough for me because versus Starship Troopers, which we just heard from the Verhoeven fascist satire killer Space Bugs movie. Yes. Denise Richards in that one, uh-huh. Neil Patrick Harris, and of course, Michael Ironside. For me... At the time, I would have gone Three Kings all the way. I loved Three Kings. I don't think I saw Starship Troopers initially Mm -hmm. and kind of missed out on the whole initial appreciation. Same thing. And then came the huge reappreciation where it's held up as this brilliant satire. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen it since. So I really wonder if I'd flip if I watched the two today. Mm -hmm. So I don't don't know where I'm going to go. Well, but your gut is the one that you (sighs) If I'm going with my gut, I'm going to go with Three Kings. Originally, and that's where I am as well. I really appreciate Starship Troopers, but I loved Three Kings, and that is getting my vote. The next one, it's our smart high school comedy matchup. Alexander Payne versus Amy Heckerling. You have to pick Election or Clueless. And I love both of these more than either of the two previous films, so this is more difficult. My gut says... Clueless. I'm going with Clueless. You know what? Me too. And I'm guessing a majority of our listeners just groan. Really? We both said that. Well, I say that not because they don't like Clueless, but because I know so many people, Brett Merriman's one of them, 
who love election. And I liked election the first time I saw it. But Clueless is one of those films I've caught multiple times over the years on HBO. Always enjoy it. If I had to put one in right now, I'd watch Clueless again. Yeah, I've never seen election again. No, that's absolutely fair. I don't know if that's a great rule to always apply to every, but sometimes you just need to go to something, (laughs) right? And I think I'm with you. When I was thinking of the two, Clueless made me laugh more. That's all it was. We can't wait to hear what you think about that one. We move on to Leon the Professional versus Hard Boiled. Yeah, that's, this is pretty easy for me. So Luke Besson or John Woo were essentially asking here. It's a man against the mob matchup. Yeah, hit John Woo. I'm going John Woo. I'm going John Woo as well. Yeah. I like the professional. We talked about Gary Oldman and his great performance as the bad guy in that movie, but I think hard-boiled, a more significant film, my choice as well. Dead Man. Ooh, Josh. This one's, this one's a Josh Larson special, I think. Dead Man versus The Virgin Suicides. Mm-hmm. So the plot giveaway in the title slash offbeat American auteur that's matchup. It. Yes. That you guys were looking to fill that hole. We really were. <laughs> and that's the best we could come up with. Jim Jarmish versus Sofia Coppola. Okay, this this will probably be a surprise. Not too hard for me. As big of a Coppola fan as it's I dead am, man. you love it's it. a dead man is maybe one of Jarmusch's best, maybe his best, and Coppola's just getting started there. So for me it's dead man all the way. Okay. I'm gonna follow that logic. We're agreeing too much, even though I've only seen both films once. Dead Man would get my choice. How about this Tim Burton matchup? You can only pick one. They're both not going to make it into the final bracket. It's Ed Wood or Edward Scissorhands. Easy for me. Yeah. The unconventional route. I love Edward Scissorhands. I think that's probably going to win. I do. I think it's going to win. Really? Okay. Yeah. I just feel like it's more beloved, but everyone can prove me wrong. My vote is Ed Wood. You can also only pick one Robert Altman movie. It's The Player or it's Shortcuts. I got to go with the player. Yeah, I know that's too. more conventional, but maybe I'm back to the fun answer with this one. Maybe so. So I'm going with the player. Okay. Now, I just want to point out for the record, because I was so proud of myself, I tried to convince Sam to change these matchups instead of being Burton versus Burton, Altman versus Altman. It should be Ed Wood versus the player, Hollywood versus Hollywood, and follow me here, Edward Scissorhands versus Shortcuts. <laughs> See, this is why you guys but never stop. The word, the word brilliant is what you're looking for, Josh. No, no. Okay. <laughs> I don't have a word for it because I just rolled my eyes. <laughs> Less brilliant. We are only giving you one Krzysztof Kislowski movie. And people who are big fans of his work, as they should be, we did a marathon of Kislowski here on the show. They're going to really bemoan the fact that not only is only one of these two Three Colors movies going to advance, The Double Life of Veronique is on the outside looking in. And no, we don't feel good about it. You can only pick one, blue or red. Juliette Binoche versus Irene Jacob, both so good. And that's how I'm going to decide. I'm just going to say that I know more of Binoche's work, and so I perhaps wrongly appreciate her more. So I'm going to go with her and blue. I'm going with blue as well. I recall from the marathon thinking blue was the best of the three colors movies. And I love Juliette Binoche, but Irene Jacob, if I remember correctly, haven't had a chance to look it up. If we go back to our Kislovsky marathon awards, I think I had her for the double life of Veronique as my favorite performance in that marathon. So formidable matchup there of actresses and of movies going to be a very tough choice. We have two more, Josh. You can only pick one toy story 
or Toy Story 2? No brainer. Toy Story all the way. Is it? I know a lot of people like Toy Story 2 better. I thought it just, while it made a few intriguing innovations, it was mostly a retread for me of the original Toy Story. So Mm. that's where I'd go. Feedback at filmspotting.net is where you send your hate mail. I know. For Josh. I'm going to contradict myself here because I'm pretty sure on Letterboxd, on my list of Pixar movies ranked, I think I have Toy Story 2 in the number one slot. I think I do. But I'm going to go with Toy Story here because I think I'm just going to default to the it was first. And the more I think about it, that relationship between Woody and Buzz, while it's obviously such a huge part of that second film, it really just made the first one so special. I'm going to go that way. I'm not one to question people's rankings on Letterboxd, but you have it as the best Pixar film? Well, Toy Story 2? Well, maybe while you do the next pick here, I'll look it up because I should have, actually, now that you bring it up, Josh, now that you challenge me, I should have Finding Nemo there. Yeah. I think Nemo is my favorite. And that's correct because it's number one for me. I think I have Toy Story 2, though, rated higher than Toy Story. Okay. Toy Story 2 for me is rated as the 11th best Pixar film. But I like it. What? I like it. It's just— 11th? Yeah, 11th. I like Red I mean, they've got better. a lot of good films. I like Wall-E better. I like Toy Story 3 better than Toy Story 2. I, I love Toy Story 3. I think we're getting lost in a tangent we are. here. We are. Okay. Film Spotting your last, Madness your last play The in. first of many. This is what makes Film Spotting Madness fun. <laughs> your last play-in matchup. Yes. We are going with box office juggernauts, mm-hmm. action movie, I suppose, spectacles of the 1990s, two of the biggest directors of the 1990s, Steven Spielberg versus James Cameron, Jurassic Park, the Titanic. And this I have to hold off until I watch Titanic again because we're going to do it. So otherwise it's really tough because I looked at these two films at the time the same way. Uh These are just impeccably technically crafted experiences. Neither registered with me on an emotional level. Mm. Uh, So to me it was like, looking at the same sort of experience. I I guess I would lean towards Jurassic Park. I'd rather revisit Jurassic Park. From what I recall, Jurassic Park is not five hours long, and so it has that in its favor. I just think it was maybe more of a tightly constructed film, but it's very possible I'll watch Titanic again and really like it. So I did revisit Jurassic Park. I remember talking about it here on the show briefly, wrote about it on Letterboxd, the traumatic experience taking Quinn. I saw it in the theater because it was an anniversary. A few years back, they were showing it At our local multiplex, took my three oldest kids, Quinn at the time, couldn't have been more than about seven, and was so terrified by the dinosaurs that I had to call Sarah to come pick him up halfway through the film. Maybe we didn't even get halfway, but as much as I did like it, for whatever reason, I think I want to go Titanic. I feel like Titanic may actually hold more mystery for me here. If I'm going just based on running time, Jurassic Park certainly wins, but hey, I'm going to try not to do that. Titanic got you into film school, so you, know, you owe it, <laughs> it something. It helped. It, it must have because, yeah, that essay did get me in. But Jurassic Park, I think, is definitely going to win here. I think it's just that movie for a certain generation, the generation that's about 10 years younger than us, and there are a lot of them listening to film spotting, where Jurassic Park is their job. Yes, absolutely. That was enlightening to me to realize that there is a generation that holds it that tightly and in that high of esteem. So I mean, they're wrong. It's nowhere they, close to the masterpiece uh, Jaws's, but no, that's okay. I, I would agree with you. I think that's obvious to everyone, but that generation. But if they come out in droves and vote, Jurassic Park could win over Titanic. It could. Film spotting madness, it has begun, and we can't wait to play along with you. 
Vote in those play-in polls at filmspotting.net slash madness. So which superhero movie should Greta Gerwig direct? None <laughs> is probably the right answer, but what's the fun in that? When we come back, Adam and I share the top five directors we'd like to see handed the reins of a comic book franchise. Stay with us. Well, I was talking last night. Dear Mr. Drake, as it has come to my attention that your mutant abilities have recently emerged, I am extending to you an invitation to join the Charles Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters. Here you will join our small but extremely talented student body. So, you're the new guy? Yeah, I guess so. I'm gonna have to get you fitted for a jumpsuit. Like yourself, each has their own unique ability. That was What If Wes Anderson Directed the X-Men by Patrick H. Willems, a video you can find on YouTube, or you can go to our show notes at filmspotting.net for this episode and find a link there. Now, you and Sam behind the scenes here, you you uppity Wes Anderson <laughs> fanatics had to had to say it was just okay. But but you have to admit it's inspired. It's it's basically it's the Royal Tenenbaums, but if it was yeah. an X-Men movie. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's it's interesting that Anderson is one of the first people that come to mind when you throw this question out there because he does have such a distinctive style. You'll also see what if Wes Anderson did a horror movie or what if he did this, you know? So he's just one of those filmmakers people would like to see thrown at something completely different from what they've been doing. I don't know if I quite – approached this top five that way, though. Really? Where I was sure Wes Anderson was your one No, he's not. Variations (laughs) on a theme. It's weird because – I think I just love his stuff so much. I kind of don't. And this doesn't to mean that I consider it slumming to take on a superhero franchise. Mm-hmm. But I just don't want him to do that. <laughs> well, let's talk you know? about that a little bit here, the the impetus behind this. I mean, yeah. obviously, we were looking for a tie-in with Black Panther. And it's a good one for reasons we touched on during that review in that you would not think probably that the guy who made Fruitvale Station, just going off that movie, would eventually make – this Marvel right. Cinematic Universe movie, but we're glad he did. Yes. And there are other examples of this coming up, too. I just, only a day or two ago, working on this list, Googled the Captain Marvel movie that's coming out with Brie Larson mm-hmm. as Captain Marvel. Do you know who's directing that movie? I knew it, but I forgot. It's Anna Boden and Ryan Fleck. That's right. The yes. people who made It's Kind of a Funny Story and Sugar and Half Nelson, these indie directors who you would never imagine making a tentpole franchise movie, but the kind of directors that we would put up and hope would maybe one day make that kind of movie and bring a little bit of a different personality to it. So that's kind of where we're going with this list. Yeah, and we we should also note that this was first suggested by a film spotting advisory board member, Corndog. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Why are you laughing? If Corn Dog wants to change that name now that we're using it on the air, but 
it was a fun idea. I think it's a promising idea, especially if you think about approaching it, not just from the curiosity factor, but really trying to match a director's sensibility with the sensibility of the comic book or maybe of the character. That's it. And once I started doing that, it was kind of a fun thought experiment to engage in. I'm with you. I said this last week when we were teasing this top five. This was as much fun as I've had putting together any recent top five list. And we'll see if the results speak to that, but just a little bit more set up. And I think I expressed these concerns a little last week. I was worried at first when we were kicking this around that we both didn't have enough geek cred to really go down this path. That will reveal itself. You will see that we are limited, I think, or I'm just going to speak for myself. I'm limited when it comes to knowing the vocabulary around some of these superheroes and their origins and their powers and all of the legacy that's in place with them. So bear with us and be patient a little bit. Also, it's not as if you and I are sitting around all the time talking about our love and fascination with superhero movies, nor do we think that this is the end-all, be-all trajectory for our favorite directors. Correct. They don't need to make a superhero movie in order for us to appreciate them or really to be taken seriously. I don't think probably, I could be wrong, but I don't think Sean Baker from The Florida Project is probably sitting around pining for his opportunity to make a Marvel or DC movie, but maybe he is. I do understand that it reflects, to a certain extent, standing in the industry And not only that, maybe more importantly, Josh, the opportunity for different voices to take on these works, right? That's really what's most important, just trying to to get some new perspective and a new vision. So it is about that marriage of the material, the director and the superhero and maybe the star. One other example of this, just a few days ago, Slash Film had an article about Alex Garland, the director of Annihilation. We're going to discuss that here on an upcoming episode. And he has some history with comic book movies because before Annihilation and Ex Machina, as a screenwriter, he did write the comic book adaptation for Dread. And he was asked in a Reddit AMA, I think just recently, what comic book movie he would make if he could. And his answer was Swamp Thing. He didn't go into a lot of detail, but I'm just quoting here from the Slash Film article. It says, judging by his talent for approaching pulpy sci-fi elements through a restrained, humanistic lens, he could be a fantastic fit. His work behind the camera with Ex Machina and Annihilation, as well as his work on scripts for Never Let Me Go and Sunshine, prove him to be a challenging, ambitious sci-fi filmmaker who seeks to explore the meaning of human identity. So if you go with that background, matching him with something like Swamp Thing, Makes sense. I think that's kind of where we were both yeah. going with these lists, right? Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of Swamp Thing, I'll share one listener suggestion right off the top here because we got a ton of them on social media. But Jason Knight suggested for Swamp Thing Jeff Nichols, which I also think is intriguing. So <laughs> okay. We got, we'll share some more of these listeners' Is that like a Southern stereotype? I, I don't know. Mud and kind swamps. of a Southern Gothic vibe, yeah, maybe. It works. So maybe it'll work. Okay. Let's see if you think my number five might work. I can't wait. Sophia Coppola making Aqua Woman. Now, mm. you know where I'm going with this, Adam. I do. The Little was, Mermaid movie I you made up? I was so disappointed that Sophia Coppola's live-action Little Mermaid movie never came to pass. It did exist at one point, Adam. It did <laughs> exist. Well, maybe this could be the next best thing. I'll admit, speaking to our cred, Aqua Woman is not one of those comic book characters that I'm very familiar with. From what I could tell, she's relatively new, first introduced around 2014, I think, as part of DC's Earth 2 series. So there aren't really decades of mythology to deal with here. And I think that's okay because I basically want Coppola to take this basic framework, an aquatic superheroine, 
and use that canvas to offer, you know, what she usually does, a, a portrait of a very specific sort of femininity. Mm-hmm. Now, if that sounds far-fetched, keep in mind that most of Coppola's movies seem to be taking place underwater anyway. When you think about how they're described, like words like languid mm. come up. There's, there's slow movements within them. There's just a, a flow. The characters flow in Coppola's movies. So I think in some ways this would be something of a natural fit from an aesthetic standpoint. Now, you mentioned earlier that you thought about casting these yes. films as well. So I've been thinking about who might be able to play Aquawoman. And I'm just going to go back to someone who's worked with Coppola about the right age. I would expect Elle Fanning, who was in The Beguiled with her. I could see she's she's kind of watery, I think. <laughs> when I think of Elle Fanning, yeah. that word comes to mind. So yep. maybe, maybe that would work. Okay. Now, I'm not too stoked about this year's Aquaman movie, speaking of superhero exhaustion. I think stoked is maybe the right word to use. Jason Momoa, he mm-hmm. seems to be going for Aqua Dude more than anything else. But if Sofia Coppola had Aquawoman coming out, I would be into it. Okay. I would be intrigued as well. And Jason Momoa, a nice transition into my number five because my director last directed Momoa in her recent film. I'm going to give this to you. I'm going to give my choices to you as if you are the studio head and I'm pitching it okay. to you. So I'm going to give you the director and the title and the actor and see how you react. Now, this one may stump you a little bit because I don't think you're as familiar with this director's work. And I don't think you'll place the actress's name either. I could be wrong. This is the only one. Rejected. That will do that. So you're already it's like, <laughs> she's not a big enough star. They don't. It's over. <laughs> no brand name. Okay. Sorry. Here next. It is. Next. My number five superhero director combo I'd like to see is Anna Lily Amarpour's okay. Ms. Marvel starring Golshifta Farahani. Okay. Golshifta Farahani. And I'll get to a reason why in a moment. At least one reason why she's a problematic fit here is Patterson's wife in the movie, Patterson, starring opposite Adam Driver in that Jim Jarmusch movie. She is an Iranian actress, and that descent is important as this is the description of Ms. Marvel that Comic Vine, a website, gives. This new Ms. Marvel, anyway, Kamala Khan, is the girl's name. She is a shape-shifting Muslim Pakistani-American teenager from New Jersey who becomes the newest holder of the Ms. Marvel identity. So without knowing all the history of this, there have been different Ms. Marvels over the years. It was a counter to Captain Marvel. Carol Danvers was the original Ms. Marvel, and that is who Brie Larson is playing, as I understand it, in the Captain Marvel movie. So Ms. Marvel has been this kind of go-to figure throughout the Marvel Universe over the years, and now in its current imagining, she is a 16-year-old Pakistani-American girl from New Jersey. So this was the hardest to cast because I'm going to confess I can't think of any Pakistani-American teenage actresses off the top of my head. And I did Google a little bit, and I found, I found actresses that, that act in movies not here in the United States, not in Hollywood movies, so that wouldn't do me much good. Golshifta Farahani I think is really wonderful. In Patterson, she's also in Body of Lies. She plays a Jordanian in that film opposite Leo DiCaprio. That was the Ridley Scott film from a few years back. But she is 34. She doesn't look 34 to me. She looks maybe mid-20s at best. I don't know that she could pass as a 16-year-old. I will open this up to other people who might be more enlightened than me and can suggest someone who could really play Ms. Marvel. One of the reasons that I think this character could be so fascinating to see on screen, and this goes back to something we talked about during Black Panther, 
And also our recent conversation where we revisited The Last Jedi, the idea of diversity came up and someone challenged it, saying it was a weakness of The Mm -hmm. Last Jedi. I took issue with that. And one of the things I don't think I pointed out in my argument, even though it belonged and is certainly a no-brainer, is that everybody deserves, everyone deserves to see themselves represented on screen, to see themselves reflected back, whether that's an everyday reflection of who they are, or it's a fantastic version of who they are. And just last night, as I was jotting down my notes, I went to Twitter and I did a search for Ms. Marvel, just to see if anybody is is saying anything about her. What's the dialogue around this character right now? And a user named at Foxville underscore art, who says she's a visual development artist and illustrator, and she's co-host of at the Art Corner podcast. She wrote this, growing up, I never saw anyone who looked like me, a Pakistani Muslim immigrant in the media I consumed, let alone an actual crime-fighting superhero. I'm so thankful for Ms. Marvel. I think we'd all be thankful to see that character on screen. And I do like the meta-narrative element to this as well, Josh, where based on what I read about Kamala Khan, she was someone who was obsessed with superheroes and comic books and Ms. Marvel in particular. And then when she basically gained these powers that she gained, she decided to take on this persona, which seems so appropriate for this age we live in right now, this this fanboy and fangirl age. And just the fact that she is someone who is discussed as someone who is an outsider, who always felt different, who is cast out a little bit at school and takes on this persona to help people, just to help people because she's inherently compassionate, also seems like a character we all need to see right now. Yeah, I like it. And Armapur was another filmmaker who I came didn't even up talk about her. a lot. You know, a lot <laughs> all of all that rambling, and I didn't even talk about the director. But a lot of listeners pegged her right away as someone who could pull off one of these films. Of course, yeah, directed the Bad Batch and A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Yes, so. and and when I thought of Kamala Khan, and when I saw some of the pictures, even though it couldn't be more different because they're very colorful, and A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night is in black and white. But the first character, the first actress I envisioned is Sheila Vant, who is that girl who walks home alone at night. And so that sense of being an outsider, being different, being alienated from those around you and yet trying to assimilate, that's very much at the core as well of The Bad Batch, even though it's a very different movie than A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. She just seems like the right director for that character and material. All right. We're at my number four. I guess I would say Adam, I dabbled in comics more than anything else when I was younger. I'd pick them up here and there. Probably the age I was most into them was middle school. And that's also when I embarked on a get-rich-quick comic scheme that didn't really pan out. In 1986, Marvel tried to launch a completely original series of superheroes under this New Universe banner. I think there were about eight made-from-scratch characters or teams. I... Middle school me saw an investment opportunity, Adam. So <laughs> I shelled out the 75 cents each. This was in 86 for the first five issues of each series. Guess how much they're worth now? I checked while putting together this list. 85 cents? A dollar seventy each, Adam. Wow. Thank you very much. According wow. to my math, I doubled my money. More than doubled my money. <laughs> Some of these were really cheesy. I found these in a drawer over the weekend. Kickers Inc. was a team of former football players. Not too cool. But I do remember... Rejected. (laughs) Good move. 
There was one that I I liked for more than investment purposes called Night Mask, a character created by Archie Goodwin. This is a teen with the ability to enter other people's dreams. Now, Night Mask had this goth look. There was a a black high-colored cape that he wears, and it ends in these tendrils. And with its dreamscapes, the comic gives ample opportunity for really surrealistic flourishes. So who do I want to see make the Night Mask movie? Well, I think Tim Burton still has a great movie in him. And before you scoff, here's the kicker. I want his night mask to be stop motion. Okay. There are definitely some Jack Skellington touches hmm. to night mask's look. I'd even – here. here's how much I'm committed to this, Adam. I will put my earnings from my new universe collection. I'll sell them all and put that towards seed money <laughs> oh, yeah. for the night mask great. movie. <laughs> Get it off the ground. I don't know anything about night mask, but Tim Burton's night mask does sound right, Josh. So good pick. Okay. <laughs> Let's see how you take to my number four, obviously inspired by a recent discussion here on the show. David Cronenberg's (laughs) Angel starring Timothy Chalamet. You're going to have to fill me in on Angel. So Angel, you have seen on screen before because I am guessing, though you probably skipped X-Men Apocalypse as I did. The one starring Oscar Isaac, the recent one. Yes, have not seen that. You did see the Brett Ratner directed X-Men The Last Stand? Or am I wrong? I wish I had that information readily available. <laughs> okay. Ben Foster, the great Ben Foster, oh, yeah. okay. plays yes. the very blonde yes. angel Saw that. in X-Men The Last Stand. And his namesake, his real name is Kenneth Worthington III. I'm just going off of Marvel's Wikia here. He is the mutant son of the wealthy Warren K. Worthington Jr. And his wife, Catherine, neither of whom were aware that their son had developed, this is where Cronenberg comes in, Josh, a pair of large feathered wings extending from his back, mm. enabling him to fly. If you go back I can and watch that scene now, can't you? The body horror of that. If you go back and watch that scene from X Men: The Last Stand, that's basically what we get. We get a flashback to the younger Ben Foster character, the younger Warren Worthington, who is actually trying to cut off the wings from his back. He's so ashamed of them that he's trying to cut them from his body in a scene that isn't really that disturbing. It's not what what David Cronenberg would do with it, but you could imagine what he might do with it. And then later we see when he finally kind of revels in the full force of his wings when he does come out to his family. And that's that's one of those metaphors or one of those analogies that go with a lot of X-Men characters. And it certainly ties to Warren Worthington as well. Now, Depending on the movie and its scope, he could also turn into Archangel, which he does. And apparently this happens in X-Men Apocalypse. Apocalypse turns him into this dark, foreboding character who merges with technology. And those wings go from being feathers to these, as they're described in front of me, techno-organic wings. He can fly higher and faster and they're razor sharp with feathers that are thrown as blades with a neurotoxin. We're really in Videodrome territory. We are, aren't we? So that's the thing. It's just something about that that combination of body horror and potentially body and technology converging, the consequences of that convergence that seems so appropriate for Cronenberg. And then Chalamet. I'm going with Chalamet because he's probably the actor I'm most curious to see whatever he does next at this point. I feel like he can do just about anything. And even though his hair is obviously dark, Depending on what angel you go with, if you Google him, usually you'll find someone who has either very long flowing blonde locks or 
well-coiffed sort of straight up kind of hair, but, but longish. And Chalamet, I think if you dyed that hair blonde, there's just something about that that screams angel to me. And I think I'm also just naturally playing off of the character we see in Call Me By Your Name, too, who is a rich kid. He's a little bit entitled, but there's also a fundamental goodness to him. And he's someone who's determined to discover who he really is. So playing off of that Elio character in Call Me By Your Name, dye that hair blonde, give him some wings, and he's Angel. That's good, but you should know I am also considering a proposal via Twitter from at Hugh underscore Goldolphin, David Cronenberg's Hulk. Mm. So pretty good match. That makes too, sense. But maybe he can do both. We'll see. Maybe. All right. My number three is Anna Rose Homer's Doctor Strange. Ooh. Now, the winner of the 2016 Film Spotting Golden Brick Award has yet to announce her next feature project. So I say give her the next installment in the Doctor Strange series. We recognized Homer for The Fits, a spectral indie in which the members of a competitive girls dance team begin to suffer these unexplained seizures. And The Fits is very much rooted in reality. But here and there, Homer offers these subtle cinematic flourishes that flirt with the supernatural. And then there's that ending, which launches us unexpectedly and really without much explanation entirely into the realm of the metaphysical. I don't want to spoil it because some listeners might actually have not seen The Fits yet, and you should really see The Fits. Well, Doctor Strange takes place almost entirely in the metaphysical. And while I like the first film well enough, I do think that like so many of the Marvel movies, it was in danger of being swallowed up by the CGI in order to depict this metaphysical world. Mm -hmm. So I'd be really curious to see how Homer's lo-fi approach might shake things up. Yeah. Great tie-in to my number three, Josh, because initially Anna Rose Homer was the director I had attached to my project. Oh, really? So okay. she's, she's going to be very busy yes. at Film Spotting Studios. <laughs> but I did back her out. I went with another director, even though Homer could do a wonderful job. I think this is going to be your favorite of all of my pitches. All right. Sarah Pauly's Rogue, starring Anya Taylor-Joy. Ooh. The actress, of mm -hmm. course, from Split recently and The Witch, the Witch which yeah. is where I think we both discovered her. And I'll get to why I'm going with Polly in a moment. But you probably remember Rogue. Anna Paquin played yes. her in the Brian Singer X-Men movies. And just based off appearance, there is something otherworldly, immediately otherworldly about Anya Taylor-Joy. There is just a haunted aspect to her that I think is so fitting with the Rogue character. But I also think she's able to bring the sense of playfulness she might need as well, being a teen girl or a 20-something girl. She does have this dark past based on what I've read about Rogue's past. She was raised by her Aunt Carrie after some tragedy involving her parents, and she ran away, and she's taken in by Mystique, who we know from those movies is connected to Magneto. And her, her power, basically, her mutant power, is that whenever she touches someone, she takes their powers from them. And it all started with, and this is depicted in those X-Men movies, a kiss. She has her first teenage kiss, and her mind fills with all his memories, and he falls into a permanent coma. And so then she's always on the run. She's always haunted by that experience. She doesn't know how she can really engage with society with that type of power that she could inflict on other people. So I mentioned Taylor Joy. I looked up her origin. She's Argentine-British 
and born in Miami. There's just something unconventional about her appearance that I think is fitting for the rogue character. And apparently someone beat me to it because I did discover that she's already been cast in a Fox spinoff, The New Mutants. She, oh, you're kidding she plays, me. She plays Magic, okay. a character named Magic, a girl <laughs> who has learned sorcery and uses teleportation discs to travel. I didn't discover that until I'd already cast her in my movie, though. Yeah. I know Marvel's against that. You can't play different superheroes, but she's going to be in my version of Rogue, directed by Sarah Pauly. And here's why I went with Pauly. You think about Take This Waltz away from her stories we tell. They ask questions about origins, where you come from, even to be very literal about it. Who are my parents? Who do I latch onto as my parents? A movie like Away From Her, you have characters who are no longer in control of themselves, whether it's your mind or your body, you're not in control of it. And then even take this waltz, the movie starring Michelle Williams and Seth Rogen. It's all about that physical disconnect and the frustration that comes from a lack of intimacy, which obviously afflicts this rogue character. I have a feeling that of all the directors we're talking about, Sarah Polly would be the one to say absolutely not <laughs> about Probably. taking out a comic book movie. But I, I, for one, would be very intrigued to see her try to do it. Absolutely. Let's get to some listener feedback here. We did get some great voicemails with their picks for superhero director combos they'd like to see. Hey, Adam and Josh. This is Ben Hollis from North Hollywood, California, calling in for my choice for who should direct a uh, superhero film who has not yet I guess technically you could consider it a point break a superhero film. But yes, I'm picking Catherine Bigelow, uh, who's never directed a true superhero film, let's be honest. Uh, I think she's a fabulous action director. But even though I liked her first two collaborations with Mark Bowl, really did not like Detroit, and I kind of wish she'd move on. And I feel like a, uh, a superhero movie might be an interesting way to do so, particularly if you pick someone interesting. I would pick Green Arrow. Uh, he has a very popular show on CW which is really unfortunate because it's pretty much nothing to do with Green Arrow. It's more about hot guys and abs, uh, which has its place. But the actual Green Arrow is sort of a rebel, uh, a 70s creation, who's uh, a guy who fights against corruption and financial abuse and in sort of a post-2008, post-big short world. I feel like we could go uh, have some interesting discussions about a guy maybe taking down corrupt bankers and the like, and what does that mean? And I think she could sort of go back to her old, exciting, uh, you know, point break era, strange days style filmmaking, but still have some of that political relevance that she loves uh, so much in her modern films and uh, create something really interesting. I feel like we need a superhero film that uh, actually, I don't know, pisses people off and and causes a little bit of uh, uh, controversy and things like that. I think that might be interesting. So Catherine Bigelow, please come back and make cool action movies. I miss you doing so. All right. Talk to you all later. Bye. I'd pay to see Catherine Bigelow's controversial Green Arrow, wouldn't you? You know what I thought might be along those lines controversial for her as well to take on? A Captain America movie. Hmm. I mean, think about the ways, as Ben was mentioning, she has explored and interrogated the notion of patriotism. Good word, yeah. To let her loose on that Hmm. might be fun as well. We are at your number two, Josh. Okay, for number two, this follows nicely your number three, which was a pick of an X-Men character who hasn't really gotten their full due in some ways. Mine is going to be Storm. And the director for that character, I think, should be Dee Rees. Now, Storm has been played by Halle Berry and Alexandra Shipp so far. I don't think— You're going Mary J. Blige. (laughs) Might be a little on the older end. Okay. Um, Do I have someone cast for this? Let me think about that. I'll see if I can give you someone You can come back to it. But 
for the Storm movie and D. Rees, I think there are a couple of reasons. This is a nice pairing. Rees has obviously, as an African-American woman, been a boundary-breaking filmmaker with 2011's Pariah and last year's Mudbound. And Storm, boundary-breaking character, from what I could tell, the first black female superhero. Now, of course, the character was created by white guys, okay? Len Wein and Dave Cockrum in 1975. And she's largely been depicted by white men, both on the page and on the screen. So obviously there are limitations to that. And I think that's why Rees could bring such a different and exciting perspective to the character. Beyond the identity politics, though, Rees showed with Mudbound in particular that she has an eye for landscape and weather. Think about that rainstorm that Mudbound opens with. And Storm's power, of course, is the ability to control just those things. I'd suggest that yeah. Rees also reteam with Rachel Morrison, who's up for an Oscar yes. for her work on Mudbound. Okay, so who should play Storm? How about Tiana Paris, who was in Dear White People and who I loved in Spike Lee's Chirac, the sort of the, the lead role yeah. there. Really good. She might make for a strong Storm. I like it. And we're going to go from your pick. What did you say? The first black female superhero? I think so. Okay. Well, I've got the first black superhero, at least in the DC universe, at my number two. How about, Josh? Jordan Peele's Green Lantern starring Daniel Kaluuya. Man, I I I can see this one happening. uh, Me too. And I don't mean that they're playing Hal Jordan the character that Ryan Reynolds played in the Green Lantern movie, but he would play Jon Stewart, who debuted in volume two, number 87, back in December 1971. Basically, the artist Neil Adams came up with the notion of having a substitute Green Lantern. And as it says here from, I think, Wikipedia or maybe a DC site, the decision to make the character black resulted from a conversation between Adams and editor Julia Schwartz, in which Adams recounts saying that given the racial makeup of the world's population, we ought to have a black Green Lantern, not because we're liberals, but because it just makes sense. And the character was DC's first black superhero. So he's been a recurring character in the Green Lantern universe ever since 1971, sometimes stepping in for Hal Jordan. At one point, he stepped down as Green Lantern. And I think What it is, Josh, is the idea for me of seeing a comedic take on the superhero genre. I know we've seen it to an extent with some of the humor in Guardians of the Galaxy, but really the vision and the comedic sense of a director like Jordan Peele. And maybe that's partly because I have seen the Ryan Reynolds Green Lantern, which I think a lot of us would agree was unintentionally funny. Um, Are you going to force me to admit that I liked that movie? Oh, (laughs) God. Well, this was worth it just so you're on the record saying you liked that movie. But, Bro, Ryan Reynolds, Green Lantern. Uh, it's see, the truth. See, that movie is unintentionally comic. I'd like to see an intentionally comic take on Jon Stewart and Green Lantern. And I think, obviously, the racial overtones of everything we just described, Jordan Peele would be the best person to navigate that serious but also potentially hilarious terrain. And it turns out I'm not that far off in doing some research, Josh. Apparently, Warner Brothers, at least I found this on a website somewhere, Warner Brothers back in 2004 hired Robert Smigel to make a Green Lantern comedy starring Jack Black. Smigel said in an interview that the premise that the wrong guy gets the ring and can do all kinds of goofy visual jokes because the visuals are so potentially ridiculous. What appealed to me about it on a comedic level was that in order to be a superhero, this requires no physical skill or talent. All it requires is owning this ring automatically. That's a comedic premise. He's right. He articulated way better than I could. 
the fact that Green Lantern has just always struck me as a little bit silly. And so bringing someone like Jordan Peele to that material makes sense. Now, I also learned that there is a movie that is scheduled to come out, part of this whole universe of films, 2020, Green Lantern Corps. Oh, man. At this point, there's no director attached. Maybe they'll listen. There's no director attached. But it is described as, according to one website, lethal weapon in space. So I'm just saying that sounds kind of funny to me. You take Jordan Peele, you take a guy like Kaluuya, who they were so perfectly matched in Get Out. And that's a movie that not only brings lots of different elements to it, but the comedic merged with horror, merged with some action. I feel like they are the right pairing for a Green Lantern film. I'm going to move that one to the front of the production pipeline. So we'll see if we can beat that uh, 2020 release to theaters. Love it. My number one. I think at least from the responses I saw on social media, Greta Gerwig was probably the filmmaker who came up the most. All sorts of good recommendations from listeners. Maybe not a surprise. She's riding so high on Lady Bird right now. She's just at the front of people's minds. I knew I had my Gerwig match early on. This is probably the first one I thought of and the one I really would be the most excited to see. Okay. Greta Gerwig's Squirrel Girl. (laughs) I take it you're unfamiliar with Squirrel Girl. I am unfamiliar, but already I'm sold. All right. I can't blame you. I hadn't heard of Squirrel Girl either until I think it was Toronto International Film Festival in 2015. Someone I was with wanted to check out a comic shop. So I went in looking for souvenirs for my kids and came across this series. So I picked up an issue for my daughter. I'm just going to share the Wikipedia description. Squirrel Girl is a human superhero with the proportional strength and speed of a squirrel, as well as the ability to speak with squirrels like her sidekick, Tippy Toe. She can also command an army of squirrels which she typically uses to overwhelm her foes. Yeah. Now, believe it or not, comics legend Steve Ditko, I found out, was actually involved with the character when she first appeared in 1991. The one I picked up is a more recent one. It's it's from her first solo series, The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, written by Ryan North and drawn by Erica Henderson. Here in this run, Squirrel Girl leaves the Avengers Mansion to pursue college life, moving into a dorm and registering to study computer science. So this is pretty much picking up where Lady Bird left off, only, you know, with really weird superpowers. Mm -hmm. The issues I've read are really clever. There's a nice appreciation, but also a tweaking of the Avengers mythology. And underneath it is a true affection for this main character, who I should probably note goes by the real name of Doreen Green. And basically, I could see Doreen Green and Lady Bird hanging out together on campus, which makes me think I'd really like to see Greta Gerwig's Squirrel Girl. <laughs> Who should be Doreen? How about, you know, at, at first, of course, you think, well, Saoirse Ronan, but uh-huh. eh, that, that wouldn't quite be right. How about Lady Bird's best friend in Lady Ooh, Bird? Love it. Beanie Feldstein. Beanie Feldstein. Squirrel Girl. Okay. Gotta happen. Sold. <laughs> That That is such an inspired choice. I love Beanie Feldstein. Okay. I don't know if I can top that with my number one. This is the one, though, Josh, where I'm just going to give you the superhero first because we have a special guest who's going to play along with our shenanigans here. The character is the vision. And you and other listeners may recall that when we reviewed Captain America Age of Ultron, maybe it was Civil War where I talked about the vision, but he's born in Age of Ultron. I mentioned during one of those reviews that 
he was a fascinating character and I kind of felt like he got sidelined a little bit. He's a very powerful character and they didn't really deal with him maybe as well as I would have liked, especially in some of those battle scenes. People wrote in, they said, if you like the vision or you want to know more about the vision, you have to read the new version of the vision written by Tom King. I did that and thought it was brilliant. It also turns out Tom King, longtime film spotting listener, he's left us a voicemail or two over the years. And so I thought if I'm going to project onto the vision, the director that I think is best for the material, why not go right to the guy who wrote the vision and let's have him explain who would bring the proper vision to his material. Hello, film spotting listeners. This is Tom King. I'm the writer of Batman for DC Comics and the vision for Marvel Comics. And I've been kindly asked, in my opinion, who could be the director of the vision movie? My first instinct as a loyal film spotting listener is to uh, both go artsy and to cheat maybe resurrect Igmar Bergman from the grave to do a vision with a lot of robots staring at mirrors. Uh, but then I thought, no, what, what do I really want to get out of a vision movie? And the answer was obvious, and it's, it's money, uh, lots of money. Um, so th- then my mind went to how, how can I accomplish that noble goal? And uh, I was thinking, well, I mean, James Cameron made the biggest money-making movie of all time with Avatar, and I can't really speak too much to the writing of Vision, but I feel it's a it's a better basis than Avatar for a movie. So, uh, and you know, Terminator Aliens is a pretty good movie. So yeah, uh, if I had to pick one person to make a Vision movie, I'm going James Cameron, and uh, I don't have like Adam level kids, but I have enough kids to put through college that a uh, I think that would work. <laughs> thank you, Film Spotting. Um, and thank you, Adam and Josh. Appreciate the show, and I'll keep listening. <laughs> well, who does have Adam level kids? Right, yeah, Josh? That's just craziness. Okay. Thank you so much, Tom King. James Cameron, a great choice. And here's why. Let me give you a little bit of background about the vision and the storyline that Tom King explores in the recent Marvel series. This is the little synopsis. The vision wants to be human. And what's more human than family? So he heads back to the beginning, to the laboratory where Ultron created him and molded him into a weapon, the place where he first rebelled against his given destiny and imagined that he could be more, that he could be a man. There he builds them, a wife, Virginia, two teenage twins, Viv and Vin. They look like him, they have his powers, they share his grandest ambition, or is that obsession, the unrelenting need to be ordinary. Behold the visions. So based on that, you can see why Cameron, besides just the money factor and the fact that he'd probably bring in some box office, why the guy who did make the movies Tom mentioned, including the Terminator movies and these films about these alternate beings, would be a good fit for the vision. But here's my dream scenario for the vision. And I love, love, love Paul Bettany as the vision. He's an actor I adore. So I really don't want to recast him. But if I had to recast him, I want to see the Cone Brothers, The Vision. Oh, man. Starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, my goodness. Part of it is just wanting to see Leo work with the Cone Brothers. Yeah. Could he, has he worked, do that? I think he could. He has worked with everybody, all the big directors. The Cone Brothers are maybe the biggest name on the list that he still hasn't collaborated with. And he doesn't have maybe the mannered style of acting that... Paul Bettany brings the kind of technique we don't think of him that way as he plays this this synthetic character this robot 
character. But I think DiCaprio could do it. And I also think that he could sort of bring to it that bubbling underneath angst where he's always trying to restrain himself and play that perfectly composed character, that machine that doesn't overreact to scenarios. And yet with DiCaprio, it it would just be there. It couldn't help but be there under the surface. Yeah. That would definitely make it more of a satire, I think, if the Coens got their hands on it. And and having read mm-hmm. this series, that's definitely there. You, you know, did. there are yeah, there are satirical elements. Um, so I, I see how that could go. Yes. It's also a very like loneliness comes to mind. Yes. That's a big part of it, Josh. And I think this series, The Vision, is about this family in the suburbs. And so Even though we didn't even see it, we know they wrote Suburbicon, but it's not that because I didn't see it. What I'm really thinking of more, and there are other examples certainly from their filmography that fit with the vision, but A Serious Man, a movie that does take place in the suburbs where everything is supposed to be perfect. And yet within each house, certainly the house that we look into, the Gopnik house, we see all those secrets and all the things that are under the surface. And also we see a character where his reality and dogma – The ideals, the things he subscribes to, or let's say his programming, when those are challenged and destroyed, how do you react in that scenario? And at its core, the vision is about what what makes us human, what makes a man. These big existential questions that I have always ascribed to the Coen brothers' work, even some of their most specific genre work, those questions are being asked throughout, questions about what our destiny is, the notion of fate, how in control we are of our actions. I don't think anybody explores that material better than the cones. And they also, Josh, explore it with humor. You brought in the notion of satire. I think that's there in the vision amidst all that darkness and bloodshed. And those elements are in the vision. There's a comic absurdity to just existence that they always draw out. So that's my dream project. Yeah. When I was thinking about the vision, uh, this is not going to get Tom King any money, this version of it. Okay. But this goes back to the loneliness idea. After seeing a ghost story, I wonder what David Lowry would do with it. Good one. That would zero in maybe on a little bit of a different mm-hmm. angle, but uh, would definitely capture some of the essence of what's going on in King's work. Okay. Those are our top five superhero director combos we'd like to see. We think you have your work cut out for you. If you're going to challenge those or come up with better ones, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Before we get to any honorable mentions, we do have one more listener pick. We want to play. Hey guys, this is Eric Hill from Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. I think maybe my suggestion is David Lynch, as I would like to probably suggest David Lynch for almost anything. But my initial desire would be to see him do something with the Hulk. But since there's so many Hulk movies already, the next logical step would be a She-Hulk movie. Now, She-Hulk in Marvel Comics is the cousin, of course, of Hulk, also irradiated. Uh, And I thought Lynch, with his way of dealing with externalized depictions of multiple personalities and women in trouble, would be a natural thing. But to put a Lynch spin on it, perhaps he could ditch the whole CGI angle and just cast two different actresses to play the same part. Perhaps maybe Naomi Watts playing Jennifer Walters, the lawyer part of the duo, and Uma Thurman playing sort of an angrier lawyer part of the duo. And uh, I don't know. Beyond that, what would they fight? What would they battle? Some sort of microwave planet? I don't know. So long as maybe the villain at the end was a mutated version of Bobby Peru from Wild at Heart. Anyway, it's it's a loose idea for now, but you kind of get where it's going. Thanks a lot, and uh, have a great show.
Well, if he didn't have me at David Lynch, and he did, he certainly had me when he added Naomi Watts and Uma Thurman, and then it was really sold at Bobby Peru. <laughs> I thought he had you at She-Hulk. I pegged you for a big She-Hulk mm, guy. No, That's missed so out much. on She-Hulk. Your credibility ends there. Indeed. Huh? All right, so my honorable mentions, I'm just going to list a few others from listeners because, as I said, Greta Gerwig was so popular. Here are four Gerwig options I heard. From Taylor S. Cole, Kitty Pride, From Aaron Schaefer, Dazzler. From Dave Enna, Batman, and then at Film Guy Six One Nine went with Batgirl. You made that up, Film Guy Six One Nine. No, you'll find him there on Twitter. <laughs> well, speaking of Twitter, we do have to give some credit here. I think to Robert Lewis, the Reverend Robert Lewis, who wrote in going back to the very start of this segment with Wes Anderson directing a reboot of the original X Men in their original yellow and blue uniforms. He would do a great job with properly weaving their intricate stories together, his focusing on characters, his use of detailed sets, and exploration of emotion. So I'm guessing, I'm going to give Robert the credit that he has not seen that YouTube video and instead was just going off of what he would like to see, but right in line with that YouTube video, certainly. I was so worn out. I expended all my creative juices, Josh, on those top five. And I love my top five, so I don't have any more pitches to give you. I do have just a few names I jotted down. Two of them, you mentioned, D. Reese and Greta Gerwig. What about Barry Jenkins, Sean Baker, Jeremy Sonier, Spike Lee doing a superhero movie? And then a lot of people wrote in and said, well, you know, Edgar Wright could just make Ant-Man. Yes. And that would be there great. There was a lot of Ant-Man angst relived So online. those are some directors I'd like to see. A couple other superheroes. Batgirl. We haven't gotten the Batgirl movie yet, so a take on that could be intriguing. One of our favorite villains came up on a recent top five superhero costumes we did. We really are the show about superheroes. Pretty much. I mean, maybe, maybe we really do have geek cred. What am I talking about? <laughs> Rorschach. Let's give Rorschach yeah. his own movie, right? Yeah. And find a director who knows how to make those kind of great pulpy noir stories. And then we need someone to do justice to Daredevil because mm. the Ben Affleck Daredevil. I, I know the there's a, a series. I think it was a Netflix series. I have not watched that series. I'm just saying for the big screen, we need to redeem the Ben Affleck Daredevil. I don't know who the best director is for that. Maybe one of the names I mentioned, maybe a Jeremy Sonier would be great for Daredevil. This is going to shock you. Also, mildly positive on the Ben Affleck Daredevil. <laughs> did, do I get any cred for wow. that? No. Or did I lose no, cred? Actually, yeah. Now your, your whole list has been stricken from the record. Again, those are our top five superhero director combos. If you have any feedback for us, you can send us an MP3 or leave us a short voicemail. Feedback at filmspotting.net or call 312-264-0744. At filmspotting.net, you can also find 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. While you're there, vote in one of our, hey, vote in all of our film spotting polls. We've got yes. nine of them, nine, nine play-in polls that will help us set the final brackets for this year's Film Spotting Madness Tournament. It's the best of the 1990s edition. When you're done with all that, go ahead and download a couple episodes of some of the other shows in the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Those would be The Next Picture Show and Film Spotting SVU. You can find them both in Apple Podcasts or through your preferred podcast app. Do you think it would be more enticing if we called it the Film Spotting Cinematic Universe? Oh, yeah. I think that's what's missing. The FCU. That's all we need. Yeah, we're changing it. No longer a family. It's the Film Spotting Cinematic Universe out in wide release this weekend. Early Man, the new one from Nick Park of Wallace and Gromit and Chicken Run fame. Samson, a young Hebrew with supernatural strength, defends his people with Billy Zane and Rutger Hauer. 
I don't, back in the 90s. That's not real. That's <laughs> I, one of those you made up. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just reading what's in front of me. And Black Panther is out, highly recommended by both of us. Next week on the show, we are planning to look back at some underrated movies of the 1990s with our top five and a movie that some might think is a little overrated, but we're going to revisit Titanic for a Sacred Cow review. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, including Corn Dog, who gave us this great <laughs> top five yes. topic. Way to go, Corn Dog. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you like what you heard, how about giving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts? It really does help us reach new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Let's start us off with Black Panther. <sighs> that's that's not going to give the people what they want. Yeah. All right. Well, what fascinating! What else you did you do? You didn't do anything fun this weekend. <sighs> we were stuck at home largely because of the weather, and Debbie and I had Valentine's Day reservations okay. at a restaurant that we had to cancel because we couldn't get there because of the storm. Snow day at the house Friday, so yeah, it was kind of a stay-at-home weekend, which meant catching up for Debbie on a couple of the best picture nominees she had not seen. So we watched both The Post and The Shape of Water. Mm -hmm. Regrettably, I think she's closer to you on The Post. We never really smart dug into this, Deb's but she wasn't – <laughs> I, I don't know if I could say she disliked it. She, she wasn't thrilled by it. Okay, yeah. Um, and I don't know that she wants a Meryl Streep ban like you. I don't know if she's that heartless, it's not a ban. but she wasn't. I'm uh, anointing her. She, uh huh. Yep, but she wasn't uh, wasn't blown away by her. Yeah, I think she's a little. We're going to talk about superhero movie exhaustion. I think she has a little of that Meryl Streep <laughs> exhaustion. Um, so that was, you know, I, I liked it quite a bit more than mm -hmm. her. But she did love The Shape of Water, okay, which good. I liked much better than The Post. So, so I was good. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's that's, that's about, about it. What huh? We had going on. I had a friend in town this weekend, old college buddy who I don't think has been to Chicago to our house. We sort of did the math. He had, he had never been to the house we live in now, which we moved into in 2009. So it's been at least that long. And he's one of those guys I was really close with, met him on our floor freshman year. And one day, you know how you used to have those whiteboards? Everyone used to have a whiteboard, at least back in the day before smartphones where you communicate with each other all day you'd write like on your board where you were going or if you're looking for me i'm at the library yeah yeah of course yeah. Like, i was at the library studying uh, uh -huh. dutifully sure. but he one time wrote a message to someone in our little group and signed it brk which are his initials because his name's brian and that was like the second day of class and from then on he's always been brk okay i don't call him anything different nobody from that floor calls him anything different so brk was in town and yeah, because of the weather, we got snowed in a little bit. Friday and Saturday were pretty low key, kind of hanging around the house. But Sunday, it was better. We got to actually go out and do the the touristy thing. It didn't start well. I was looking at touristy things to do, kind of those tours and stuff. And the Chicago film tour came up. And I said, I've never been on that. It's like a two-hour bus ride. It takes you to 75 film locations. 75. That's what it said. 75 film locations. So... 
I looked at the website. I read it up and down where you meet Sunday morning, 1030, whatever. But I completely missed the fact. I, I mean, I still haven't seen it on the website anywhere. But apparently when I called, because nobody was showing up at 1030, no bus was there to take us anywhere, it's closed for the winter. That kind of makes sense. It does. At the same time, it is a bus. Like, not not a trolley. It's a bus. So you'd think it would function in the wintertime. So that got canceled. So then we had to amend our plan. So we did end up going to the Art Institute, which <laughs> I've never been to the Art Institute. I've never been there. I've lived in Chicago for 16 years. I, I'm, I'm I've just never not going to comment on that. I've never been. I, I'm embarrassed, but I've never been. And so this was a good opportunity for me. He had been there like 20 years ago. <laughs> so we went... There's some good paintings there. <laughs> I just, I'm just. There's one yeah, in particular. There is. You were there pretty recently. What's the one that's like Paris Sunday morning painting, rainy something? It's a big one. It's in. It's in. Yeah, that. it's there the it pointillism masterpiece that uh, if I were, I could really be impressed if I could pull the artist out of my Paris street rainy day. Gustav Kaebat. Oh no no now now I don't know what I. Now I sound like I don't know what I'm talking about. Paris I'm thinking Street, of the the massive big one. Of yeah, well, that's the Sunday the afternoon in the park. Yeah, yeah. Sunday at La Jatte. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The George Seurat painting. Okay. Yeah, that's incredible. I had never seen that. Obviously, yeah. we saw the Hopper, the Nighthawk there. That's great too. But this one, the rainy day, Paris Street rainy day, 1877, blew me away. Talk about cinematic and. I haven't I've been googling this to see if I could find any connection other than the fact that Wes Anderson I believe lives in Paris so who knows but this is from 1877 so much of his work I'm telling you for me comes from this painting yeah. the, it's all about symmetry and spacing mm. and and tons of tons of things going on in the frame but it's all lined up perfectly and all these these angles and people centered it's it's magnificent it really is it's a great painting so the art institute good time then what did we do Oh, we went to a play. We saw The Humans. You at, were all over. Yeah, we saw, we saw a play. We got tickets last minute to see The Humans, which is a play that came from Broadway. I think it, it, won, it definitely won some awards. And I didn't even know when I went in, but the, the actors in it, Richard Thomas from the Waltons fame, is the dad in it. Pamela Reed, who, Josh, we just talked about the right stuff. She's Dennis Quaid's wife in that movie. She mm -hmm. was in so many movies from the 80s yeah, that, yeah. that I loved. And uh, The Best of Times is another one. She's Kurt Russell. He, yeah, Kurt Russell's wife in that one. And uh, Dennis Quaid's wife in The Right Stuff. And she was the mom, and she was fantastic. So it was, it was a good play. We could, we could talk about it a lot more. I, I, I would say it's, it's definitely worth seeing. It's one of those family Thanksgiving secrets come out, kind of all hell breaks mm -hmm. loose, but, okay. but also funny. And, and there, were, there was definitely a lot of the, the laughter of recognition in the audience. Everyone had been mm -hmm. in those scenarios before, so that was pretty good. And then I finally got to eat at The Girl and the Goat. Have Ooh, you ever been there? No, we've tried. Me too. I can never, I've never been able to get into it every time I've tried to make a reservation. But I think it was Friday night, looking ahead to Sunday, looking for something for dinner. Of course, there was nothing there. And then somehow one table for two at 5.30. So we got done with the play, went, had a drink or two, went to the girl and the goat. That was probably ours. That was probably what we canceled. <laughs> Maybe so. No. So we ended, up, we ended up getting, I don't know if this is supposed to be a good thing or not. It's the first time it's ever happened to me. We had the chef's table, which I in this case meant, yeah, I didn't either, but it meant that we were sitting basically, it's like you're sitting at a bar. They have a long oh, okay. bar, but it's not a bar. It's, it's 
by the where kitchen. the people are cooking. It's yeah. the kitchen. So you're literally the distance between us right now. I was closer to the people preparing the food than I am to you right now that across the great. board. And you're just watching them make all the food, including the the woman right across from us was making desserts all night. So when it was time to order dessert, we just asked her like which yeah. one yeah. you've been making them. Which one should we eat? But it's up there. It's up there with the transcendent food experiences I've had anywhere. That's what I've heard. Including, obviously, here in Chicago. So, yeah, if you can you can do it, make the reservation. We are looking at trying to do it for our anniversary, which is in May, so we might have a shot. Yeah. Film Spotting is listener-supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.